0: Welcome to the Hayes Worldwide Leadership Insights Podcast. In this series, I'll be talking to business leaders from across the world of work who will be sharing their expertise to help you effectively lead your business, both now and in the future. In this podcast, we're joined by Bruce Daisley, a Vice President at Twitter. Bruce's passion for a healthy work culture has been recognized in a series of accolades, including a number one Apple podcast ranking for his Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat podcast, speaking to an array of experts. He's also recently released his debut book, The Joy of Work, and has spent two years studying psychology and neuroscience at work. We're delighted to have Bruce here today to share some top secrets behind a great working culture. Bruce, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Bruce, it would be great if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your career.
1: Uh, my career started in sort of traditional media. I worked at Capital Radio, worked at EMAP Radio. Then I found myself working, setting up the YouTube team in the UK for Google. And from there, I've spent the last seven years working at Twitter. It was actually my time at Twitter that led to the obsession with workplace culture. That albeit my time at Google, people used to wander past my team saying, wow, this is the best team. This is the most incredible buzz to this team. And then when I went to Twitter, people used to say to me, wow, the London office has just got this really unique vibe to it. And I decided, narcissistically, I decided that that was down to my genius understanding of workplace culture. And it was only subsequently a couple of years later And maybe things weren't going as well. I realised you're not as much of an expert on this as you think. And so what I started doing was contacting, I mean, it seems like a weird thing to do, right? But I started contacting psychologists and people, ostensibly to, to do a podcast. And what I found was as soon as I started chatting to them, their understanding of the way that work impacted us or the best way to work was completely different to what people in in office jobs thought so it it felt like there was this real dissonance people who spent time studying work would advise something completely different to what people in offices did.
0: And what was it that made you so interested in workplace culture to begin with?
1: You know ever since when I was a teenager doing bar jobs there was sometimes you'd go into a bar job and seemed to be a great buzz to the place. And then others where every night used to drag and and it was like a really strange thing. What's the secret sauce? What's the like the dark matter that makes some workplaces good, some workplaces bad? And it's just because, you know, I think we all know when we love our jobs and quite often loving the job Yes, can feel like you're making progress on something, you're getting something done. But also sometimes it's like there's just a a dynamic where you'll do favours for the people next to you. You'll work extra hard when things are busy just to get things done. And I was just really interested if you could understand the science of that, would it be easier for other businesses to unlock it? That makes perfect sense. But why is it that you believe a
0: workplace culture to be so important to both businesses and their employees?
1: So if you look at some of the stats, probably the biggest survey of people in work is the Gallup Workforce Survey. And the Gallup Workforce Survey it surveys tens of thousands of people around the world. And it looks at employee engagement. It says the average U.S. worker, for example, there are about 24 percent engagement. OK, so that's pretty low until you see the U.K. figure. The average U.K. workplace, 8 percent of the U.K. workforce are engaged with their job. I mean, the lowest is the French, so we can look at the French, they're 3%. But you suddenly realise that... If people felt a bit more engaged, they felt like they could have a bit more autonomy. If they felt like they could achieve what they're capable of in their job, there's what's called discretionary effort. People would work a little bit harder. If people believed, okay, if I was allowed to do this, I would work harder. Uh, I, I could get it done in the way I wanted, they would work harder. And I think that's the secret sauce. If you can find a way to make people feel like they're doing their best work in their jobs, actually the results follow. So... One of the best things I've seen, a professor who used to be at Massachusetts Institute of Technology studied supermarkets, and she wanted to know, so like, this isn't trendy office jobs, she wanted to know supermarkets, and she found that the places that treated their workforce the best and had the best working culture and conditions were twice as profitable as those that didn't. In fact, I spoke last week to the chief constable of Lancashire Police Force, and he said there's clear evidence that the way you treat police officers directly impact on the quality of policing that they give to the public. So these things aren't nice to have. Actually, they have a big impact on the the job we do day to day.
0: You've mentioned the secret sauce quite a lot. In your opinion, what are the secrets behind a great workplace culture?
1: I spent a long time obviously trying to get these things down on paper and writing a book on it. And the thing for me was that the first thing before anything, was that people are exhausted, more exhausted now in their jobs than ever before. And that isn't hyperbole. Since the arrival of the mobile phone, the average working day has gone up by two hours a day. And the consequence of that is people have gone from doing a hard day's work to feeling mentally exhausted. Half of all office workers are burnt out. People, people are in a state of sort of exhaustion really from what they're doing. And so the first thing, if you're going to fix workplace culture, you need to try and remove some of the, the excessive demands upon people. But the stuff that I was really intoxicated by was just science about human sync, human synchronization. And the, the science on this is magical. If you put a group of people together and you get them to dance. If you put a group of rowers together and you ask them to row in time rather than just row individually, they are able to withstand more uh, scientists inflict pain upon people. So that the way that scientists work out how much pleasure ho- hormone you got going through your body is they inflict pain upon you. It's cruel, but that's what they do. Anyway, people who are in sync with each other are able to withstand twice the amount of pain right? Then you have a look at choirs. You bring people into choirs. You bring strangers into choirs. Not only can they withstand more pain, but they also feel more connected to the people around them. So there's something magical that when we're we're fully in sync with the people around us, something is created. The endorphins are created. As soon as you understand that science, you think, what are the other ways to access that? Some of the ways to access that face-to-face chat activates it laughing together with people activates it in animals, picking the fleas of each other activates it. We don't do that in most offices these (laughs) days, but these increasing ways to get in sync with each other. And to illustrate how powerful sync is, I'll give you one example. A researcher looked at couples who lived long distance relationships. So this is 4,000 couples who were living long distance relationships and wanted to know which couples, they were unmarried, which couples survived after a, a short period of time. And the ones that survived were the ones that took time every day to have trivial phone conversations. So if you said to them, what did you chat about? It was, I've put the recycling out. It was so mundane, but it was that human sink. It was connecting with someone a sort of human intimate level was the, the thing that differentiated the ones that survived. So as soon as you know that this sink is like a magical dark matter of good workplace culture, you start thinking, what are the ways to build this in my team? What you find is meetings don't achieve it. Emails don't achieve it. it has to be face-to-face discussion. It can be trying to bring laughter back to the office. Honestly, I think most of us, especially when times are hard, I've had bosses say to me, now's not the time to be seen laughing. Right. We tend to think that laughter is this frivolous distraction. We're not doing our jobs. What you tend to find is laughter builds teamwork, builds creativity, builds collaboration. So, you know, trying to optimize offices for a bit more laughter might not be a bad thing.
0: And what actions aside from laughter and face to face conversations can bosses take and employers take to improve workplace culture immediately?
1: The third thing I I go on to look at in the book is sort of a combination of psychological safety and positive effect, two jargony terms. So let me explain what I mean. Psychological safety is effectively what you find the best performing organisations have the ability for people to speak up to the boss. And so, you know, let's have a look at scenarios where that's most vivid plane crashes. 2017 was the safest year on record for passenger airlines, and it's largely because about 15-20 years ago they instigated something that brings psychological safety to the cabin. It's called cabin resource management, but it's just a system of communication that means you're allowed to speak up to the boss and you're allowed to raise a concern without it being seen as, as anti-hierarchical. It's it, it sort of it's safe. Hospitals have it. There's a remarkable case of a guy called Martin Bromley. His wife unfortunately went into hospital in sort of her mid thirties for a routine sinus operation and she passed away. And because he was an airline pilot, he wanted to understand what they were going to do to investigate. And he found out that hospitals don't do investigations into things that go wrong. So he asked politely, he said, I wonder if you could investigate. And what he found was that even though there's 40 years of experience in that operating theatre, Everyone in the room knew what was happening, but no one vocalised it. So her air passages had collapsed. These are very routine. You do a tracheotomy, but this very routine get around for that. But because they were all so focused on the jobs that they were doing, no one resolved it. And that's a lack of psychological safety. Now, of course... Airlines and hospitals are far more vivid than our own jobs, but we suffer from this as well. People being scared to speak up to the boss, maybe being scared to say to the boss, don't email us on the weekend, please, boss. But, you know, people are scared to speak up to the boss. And so finding routes, I spoke to someone who works in the special forces, you know, the, the, the elite military in the UK. I spoke to people who worked in hospitals. I tried to understand what they do to build that psychological safety. And for me, bosses, understanding the route to building psychological safety is the route to creating greater success.
0: And what about the average worker? What can they do to help improve workplace culture?
1: Yeah, so I mentioned two things when I was Going into my jargon detail, but I mentioned positive effects and psychological safety. Positive effects is this remarkable and well-observed phenomenon that when we're in a good mood, our response to things is different to when we're not. So a researcher, Alice Eisen, did some research where she gave doctors, doctors again, sorry about this, but she gave doctors a bag of sweets. Told them not to eat the sweets, but it was just a gift. Then she gave them some medical case notes. And what she found was the ones who were happy because they'd received a gift did a far more thorough job of investigating the case notes. They asked more questions. They reached a more complete diagnosis. And it's just an illustration that when we're in a better frame of mind, we tend to do a more complete job. Now, if you think back to where we are at work, half of all of us who check our emails outside of work are showing signs, of the highest recordable levels of signs of stress. So we're all in a state of anxiety and stress. And so to my mind, If we're going to get to the state where we're in positive effect, where we're doing the best jobs we can do, we need to think about how we can depressurize some of the parts of our job. And, you know, some of these things are incredibly mundane. Taking a lunch break doesn't feel like it's a revelation. But what you find is when people take a lunch break, not only is there... Uh, clarity of thinking better, their productivity's higher. The, the worst possible time to to find yourself in front of a judge is straight before a break. At the end of the day, or just before lunch, because they tend to uh, inflict higher penalties on people and higher sentences. You know, breaks have this powerful effect of just resetting us. I and mean, when you see it in schools, you see it in hospitals, you see it in, with judges. Now, look, if someone stood up and said, "Here's the plan for 2019: We're all taking a lunch break," I think most of us would say really is that it but what you find is a combination of these small things can have a really re-energizing impact on us getting a good night's sleep obviously as well you know there's a lot to be said for it probably the most performance enhancing thing that we know in the world is getting good night's sleep it's actually really enjoyable as well but we just don't want to do it we just think it's better to either lie on our phone swiping through various million things but we don't do it we we So there's very trivial intervention. And I'll try to put 12 very simple things in there. The easiest thing that anyone can do is turn the notifications off on their phone. And normally when you say that to people, they say, yeah, I can't do that. My boss needs to get a hold of me. Sense of fear. Yeah. uh, But, you know, one of the challenges we've got of modern work is we use email for everything. So we use it for the urgent things and we use it for the non-urgent things. Someone told me about he made a, a long business flight somewhere. And it was only when he got onto the Wi-Fi in the airport, coming through passport control, uh, he saw an email saying the meeting's cancelled. He was like, "I can't believe this! I sat for hours in the airport in Gatwick before I flew." Why? And they said, "Well, we emailed you." He said, "Well, why didn't you phone me? Why didn't you?" But we don't do that. We don't even use the. We've got multiple routes of communicating with people, but we don't use all of them. And the consequence of that is a lot of us find the need to be checking emails at the weekend just in case. You know, we're not relaxing. We're in a state of sort of heightened anxiety just in case. And I think trying to get some balance there and trying to sort of get a, a sense of a freshness to what we're doing is really important.
0: Do you have any examples of great
1: workplace culture?
0: anywhere that you've seen or anywhere that you've worked that you really feel has just just hit the nail on the head?
1: I I won't talk about personal experience, but what you find is the best workplaces definitely have workers feel like they've got autonomy to get things done. It's why I'm personally against sort of banning people from using emails at, you know, the weekend. I don't think people should press send on emails at the weekend, but if you want to spend Saturday morning clearing your inbox, You shouldn't be prevented. You know, there's some talk in some countries about banning people from even accessing email at the weekend. What you do there is you're turning people into infants. You know, if you want to catch up, maybe you had Wednesday afternoon playing softball in the park. You know, if you want to catch up and feel like you're doing your job properly, even though work is too demanding, you should should feel free to do that. So I think, you know, Good workplaces normally allow people to have the autonomy to get their job done in the, the way they want. But I think, you know, accessing psychological safety is really critical. One thing that Pixar Animation does is they have something called the brain's trust. And anytime someone's working on a film, people sit down and they'll, they'll share it. And everyone in the room is invited to give criticism, but not solutions. So you're not invited to solve it. You're, you're invited to to point it out. And the people there say what it does is it means that no one feels above criticism. No one feels like they can't be told that something doesn't feel right. And, you know, in fact, the first thing that Disney did when Disney bought Pixar is they introduced the Brains Trust at Disney. They call it the, the Story Trust there. But if anyone seen Frozen, the two main characters weren't sisters before that came along. She was going to fall in love with the prince and that was going to be the end before that came along. So actually, some of the things that helped subvert that film and make it a bit fresher they came from from that process. So businesses that try and build in this psychological safety are the ones that tend to be doing a better job. And one of the, the best ex- examples of that, I chatted to a member of the UK Special Forces. He said to me this remarkable thing, that say if they've been on a, a an excursion in Helmand province or they've, they've been out somewhere, they do a hot debrief, he calls it, at the end of every day. and day. They've still got the kit on, they're often still sweat steaming off them, and they'll stand there, And he will say, he will describe what he believed they did on their mission today. And then he'll say what he did, including what he did wrong. And he said, that's a really important part of it because that gives access to everyone hearing that saying you did something wrong isn't a point of shame. It's a point of description. And so he said that by the very fact he leads by example, saying, you know, I did this, it didn't go as well as I wanted. That it gives the access to everyone to do that. And what you find is that businesses that thrive tend to have found a way to systematize this psychological safety. They seem to have found a way to do it. And so that's why, you know, I've put 10 ways to do it in the book to try and find a way to build these methodologies. And I think the secret of work really is experimentation. No one is gonna read this book and go, here's 30 things that I will definitely do. But they might read it and go, that one didn't work. I tried that and I loved it. You know, I'm going to tell 20 people about this one. And so it's about experimentation, finding what feels right for you.
0: Finally, we have a question that we ask all of our podcast guests. What do you think are the top three qualities that make a great leader?
1: I've mentioned laughing, but I love a sense of humour. Really interestingly, James Comey, the guy who is the head of the FBI, uh, fired by uh, Donald Trump, he observed that he'd even gone as far as to search YouTube for speech. He said he'd never found an instance of Donald Trump laughing. And he said, you know, in his experience, he'd worked with President Obama, he'd worked with President George W. Bush. And they used humour not only to warm a room and to, to remove the anxiety from a room, but they they used humour to, to be self-deprecating, to make a, a To make sort of a difficult point, they'd used humour as a way to to do that. It's really interesting, you know, humour is is an incredibly powerful way to sort of forge connections between us. And he he observed that Donald Trump never laughs. So I think a sense of humour, I think, you know, a sense of humility. And that's why I love these people who illustrate and demonstrate when they've done something wrong. You know, they're willing to put their hands up and say, there's something wrong here. There's uh, a wonderful example I, I talked through in the book of someone when they were trying to do a brand new procedure for open heart surgery. And the, the researcher who looked at this looked at hospitals across d- different parts of the US. And she found that a lot of hospitals found it was too difficult. Effectively, this is this is operating via someone's leg, right? You, you're putting a catheter up someone, a, a, a vein in someone's leg, then you a tiny little incision. It's really complicated. Half the hospitals just abandoned it. The ones that succeeded tended to be led by surgeons who uh, described what they were doing all the time, admitted at the end, I don't know what I'm doing here. I need help. You know, I need your input, guys. The, the ones that sort of that demonstrated that they didn't have all the answers, that the ones who weren't trying to make out that they were flawless. They were the ones that tended to be the most successful. That's really interesting, isn't it? Humility is an access point to success. I can't think of a third one. I mean, a lot. You know, the one thing I'll say is I don't think any boss should email at weekends. It's a really trivial and tactical one, but bosses are the worst culprit for this. And normally, when you act, chat to bosses, they say, "I thought I was just clearing my inbox. I was just, I thought, it was, yeah, by all means, write the email, but just don't send it because what you find is." If you're hoping that your team are gonna be creative, your team are gonna be inventive next year, all of the evidence is that stress kills creativity. And so the stress that you instigate in your team members, the fact that you're not giving them a full break is killing that part of the strategy that you were so proud of. So as long as you remember that stress kills creativity, not emailing at the weekend is the most important thing to do.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, Bruce. Thank you, family. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hayes Worldwide Leadership Insights Podcast. If you found this advice useful, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. At the same time, if you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to reach out to us via email at socialmediaathayes.com.